aftermath of serious knife crime incidents a week The later, rising profile of knife violence has swept the issue up the political agenda. And it is notoriously difficult to establish any sort of meaningful pattern around why they happen. As you've probably heard, knife crime is at a nine-year high. Everyone agrees something must be done. We are in crisis as a society. This time, the police declared this entire area a Section 60 zone. That meant officers could stop and search anyone without reasonable suspicion. Some politicians want more police on the streets or tougher sentences. Others want cuts to mental health services to be reversed. One MP has suggested every knife in Britain should have a built-in GPS tracker. Good luck with that. It was a bit of a shit idea, right? Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, we have a problem yeah. and no one's coming up with any solutions. It's tempting to jump straight to solutions. Of course it is. We've been here before. Knife crime isn't a new problem. But it is a complex one, with many possible causes, and young people's lives depend on policymakers getting it right. So today, we're taking a big-picture look at the issue with one of the journalists who's covered the issue more than perhaps any other, The Guardian's editor-at-large, Gary Young. It's the Weekly Economics Podcast. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. And this week, I'm asking, what explains the knife crime epidemic? And what should be done about it? So, hi, Gary. Welcome back to the Weekly Economics Podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Lovely to have you with us. So, as I said, we're going to be taking a big picture look at knife crime on this episode and drawing on a lot of your wealth of knowledge and expertise in the area. So, let's start with a bit about the history of the issue. This isn't the first time that we've had a big debate about how to deal with knife crime. And in your opinion, how did we get to this point? Well, um, we are still not at the place that we were, say, in 2008, 2009. So while knife crime's going up, but it's not at the rate that it was before. But my reading of it, in we did a series called Beyond the Blade Mm -hmm. two years ago, and what we saw and what I've seen since are these clusters, these clusters of crime, first of all, and then these clusters of interest, second of all, and they don't always necessarily coincide but what you get is a kind of um, a stampede of tabloid headlines, usually around particular murders, often if they are understood to be in some way emblematic, okay. either because of the number or because of the child or because of the place, and that in the absence of other long-term strategy, those headlines drive the politics. So most of the political response to knife crime is tabloid-driven. You don't, unfortunately, or haven't had, unfortunately, politicians sitting sitting down and saying, how do we get to grips with this? What you have is episodic moral panics followed by a rush for punishment, which is understood to be the only thing that voters will understand, which Mm. is where we are at the moment and where we will be again within, I would say, three or four months' time. Mm. And you said that the media interest often kind of um, 
centres around cases that are in some way emblematic. Mm. Could you say a bit more about that? Because one of the things that I was also wondering is whether it's emblematic and then also perhaps the the cases that are particularly, you know, scary, as it were, as like, oh, it was, you know, someone who wasn't connected to a gang or maybe it was a white person, you know, or something like that. And so I wonder if that, that's at play. So they can be emblematic in a range of ways. They can mm. be emblematic because they are atypical mm-hmm. or perceived to be atypical. Uh, recently, a child who went to a private school, mm. who was, you know, a child full of promise, yeah. quote unquote, which then you're wondering what they're not saying about the other kids that are dying. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so that, so it could be that which is which is understood to be atypical. And when we get into the numbers, you see that typicality actually that the media and the polity has a problem with typicality in terms of understanding who's actually vulnerable. Uh, It could be that they're all too typical. Mm -hmm. So if it's a classic case, and uh, and once again, these are constructs. Yeah. Um, So if it's a classic case, and a classic case in a mediated world would be a black boy Mm -hmm. in London or in those parts of another city that you've heard of. Mm-hmm. If it's a girl, there may be more attention. It's you know it's quite heavily constructed. This stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did Beyond the Blade in two thousand and seventeen, two thousand and sixteen, and this is fairly common. The only time that the term knife crime was used in the national press was when black boys were killed in London. Mm-hmm. That's the only time that the term was used. The year after. That was true apart from once, which was a black boy in Manchester. But otherwise, only for black boys in London. Now, half of the people who were killed by knives aren't killed in London. Mm. And I think we're close to kind of 80-something percent of the kids who are killed nationwide over the last 40 years are black. Mm-hmm. But the understanding of knife crime is a black boys in London thing. Mm-hmm. To the extent that Tony Blair in 2007 says, let's not kid ourselves that it's black kids doing this. David Cameron goes and says to um, Tim Westwood, you know, your music is killing children. Drill artists are mm-hmm. kind of banned from playing certain songs, threatened with prison and so on. So it's definitely understood. Rod Little and Spectator talks about kind of black parenting and so on. Mm-hmm. So it's understood as a black male problem. Mm. And this is one of those curious things where the where the right likes it both ways, particularly the far right, is that they want to portray knife crime in that way and then they want to say, why aren't you talking about the things affecting our community? Mm. Well, knife crime is affecting white communities actually in quite a serious way and we should talk about that more. It would give us a fuller understanding of who's um, who's suffering. One in five of the kids killed by uh, knives and the cohort I was looking at was 19 and under are female Mm. and they don't get talked about that much Mm. so when they pursue these typical narratives they're often not really as typical as as you you would think and as you say that in itself becomes then the construction of what is typical and it feeds itself yeah and it drives the politics of kind of who who should be interested, who should, you know, where is this money going, why would we do, you know, why would we invest? Mm. If you can make out that this is about black kids in London, uh, you can then build on a notion of deficient parents, deficient culture, bad music, 
all the rest of it. And before you know it, you don't have to spend a cent. Mm. You can just be talking about where well, you people have to pull your pants up and get with the 21st century, discipline your children, blah, blah, blah. It all becomes about individual responsibility, deficient culture, and it ignores the reality that this cohort I'm talking about, 19 and under, well, the overwhelming number of them are kids. Mm. And, of course, I've got kids. I believe in personal responsibility. I don't say to my kid, clean up your room, and they say, well, my room's a construct. I'm not cleaning it <laughs> up. You know, this is, clean up your damn room. You made mm -hmm. the mess. Clean it up. I believe in personal responsibility, but we also understand as a society we have a collective responsibility for children. That's why we mm -hmm. have youth courts. That's why we have youth services. That's why, in a range of ways, the state should work to wrap itself around children. So then you have to ask yourself, why don't these children count? I want to talk a little bit more later about about the who's specifically, but um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about the areas outside of London. As you said, for Beyond the Blade, I know you went to Bristol and Birmingham and some other places, I'm guessing, but yeah, the stats show it's not just a London problem. What did you find when you left? Well, it's, um, so approximately half of the deaths at this stage uh, for young people take place outside of London. The next biggest concentration is the West Midlands. Mm -hmm. And last year, you were more likely as a young person to be stabbed to death in the West Midlands than you were in London. So there's quite a high concentration there. Then after that, it would be the Greater Manchester area. Mm -hmm. But then beyond that, there is a fairly kind of dispersed, I would say, in the year we did Blades, there were 39 deaths. I think 20 of them were in London. Mm -hmm. Of the remaining uh, 19, four or five were in rural areas. Mm -hmm. And they just don't make the headlines in the, yeah. in the same way. London, it's difficult to escape the racial element. I had academics tell me that when you, when you model for class, then the racial element goes out. Mm. I don't think that's true. There's a lot of working class white people in London and they're not dying at anywhere like the rate that young black kids are dying. Mm. And that's something that has to we have to deal with, mm. grapple with. I, I can't tell you why exactly. Yeah, do you have um, thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, honestly, I don't know. And mm. I, having been away, I'm not a Londoner, uh, mm. and having been away for 12 years, I don't know London well enough to know. There are some interesting patterns, so it's not all of London. It's mostly the Outer Rim. Mm. So you're talking about Croydon, Penge, Harrow. It's kind of it's the kind of donut bit. Mm -hmm. My guess is with gentrification, that's m more where black people would be likely to live. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I really don't know why. But I think it's important to kind of own that, not to duck that. Mm -hmm. And then if you move outside London, it increasingly becomes less and less black. Yeah. And so it's not possible to talk about it being nationwide, being a black problem. It's just, that's just not plausible. And then anything that is said about quote unquote black culture, drill, parenting, or single parents, or whatever that is, unless one believes that black culture in London is significantly different mm. 
to black culture in Birmingham or that it doesn't hold. Mm. So this notion of black parenting, well, black parents in Birmingham and in, I don't know, Bristol, they're not, they're not that different to black parents in London. So unless we got people dying at the same rate, then it's not that. Mm. When we did the three events in London, Birmingham and Bristol, in London, Stop and Search came up a lot. Yeah. It didn't come up so much in Birmingham uh, and Bristol. They were th- the concentration of kind of engagement was quite different. In Birmingham, there was a lot of talk about schools and academies and um, off-rolling, um, exclusion, stuff like that. Bristol was a much more holistic. It was about a kind of what happens with a hollowed-out economy, mm. jobs. It was more more economic. Mm. So, yeah, I want to take us in that direction a little bit. I know that as we've kind of explored so far, it wouldn't, re- it doesn't really feel like the right thing to be like, so what are the causes of this mm. epidemic or this crisis? Because there's disagreement about whether it even is that thing or if it's just being portrayed as such. But I would like to talk a little bit about what you think are some of the causes, not necessarily of the increase, but of knife crime itself, you know, in yeah. the ways you've seen it. Well, the way it looks to me now, what we have this range of ways of underfunding or nickel and diming young people, Mm. which makes them more vulnerable. And it would make them more vulnerable to a lot of things, and this would be one of them. So, for example, approximately 150 kids a day are turned away from child and adolescent mental health services. So they're kids who may well need help and support, Mm -hmm. but they're not getting it. There are also, because of education cuts, massive cuts to special education needs. Mm. So you have kids in school who are in need of support who aren't getting it. You then have a culture around schools where they are being rewarded for chasing uh, league table results and mm-hmm. exam results and so on. And so what do they do with these kids? Either they exclude them externally, they kick them out, mm. or they exclude them internally, which at times can be like solitary confinement. They will put a kid in front of a wall and just say, look at that wall, mm-hmm. literally. Or they will off-roll them. So they will say, maybe it would be better if you were taught at home. Well, the parents don't mm. have the capacity to teach them at home, and so they effectively kick them out of school. And that may be not because they're behaving badly, but because they are just not doing as well in the academic subjects that they need. It can be as cruel and as as ridiculous and as um, callous as that. Mm. Or they're sent to a PRU, a pupil referral unit, and the gangs recruit from the PRU. They wait outside the PRU. They're, understand to, they're understood. I mean, the teachers are doing their best, but they've, mm. they've got nothing to work with. So there's that. Mm. You take that situation and then you get rid of youth services. You slash youth service provision. So these kids who are being kicked out of school and getting no psychiatric support have nowhere to go. Mm. And if you think of London where space is at a premium, you're 15, you're 16, you're in your parents' house, and there's nowhere to go. So then you go to the street. So these are all ways in which children are made more vulnerable, then they cut the thing that allowed you to stay on at school into the sixth form if you were from a poor background. So if you're cutting everything, Mm -hmm. 
if you are refusing to provide resources that are necessary so that vulnerable kids can stay in school, if you then have a policy which means that those kids are deliberately kicked out or excluded from school and you provide no psychological support for them, then what do you think is going to happen? Mm. Now, it needn't be necessarily nice. It might be, it might be something else. It might be teenage pregnancy. It might be, you know, there's a range of things that could happen, but you create a context in which it seems logical that there might be an increase in life crime. Now, the previous peak was in 2009, and that was before austerity. Mm. That was after the crash. But I don't think we should be, we should be too surprised that it's increasing now when everything is being cut to the bone. And you can add to that, I think, a massive cut in police mm. numbers as well. I wouldn't put that at the top of the list. Mm. The police don't put it at the top of the list usually. But in a range of ways, when I interview people for the project, kids don't feel safe. Mm, yeah, I want, I want to, so I want to talk about policing because I mm. think it's obviously often top of the list in the knife crime conversation and there's lots of divergent opinions on whether the solution to this is more funding for the police, more police officers or whether actually that is part of the problem. You know, abolitionists and other people would argue that actually the, the police in this instance are, are one of the, the main forces that are making this worse and you mentioned stop and search and things like that and I want to share an anecdote um, from a friend of mine who um, works, he's a youth worker with Red Thread, you know, the, the mm-hmm. amazing organisation that do kind of first point of contact in hospitals for mm-hmm. uh, stab victims, among many other things. Um, and one of the stories that he told me about this was that a young person that he works with was uh, f- like fleeing from someone who who wished to do them harm and hid in the, was a young black boy and hid in the garden of a, a white family in London who then called the police. Then the police arrived and... Um, and spoke with the young man who, who explained the situation um, and asked if they would escort him home so that he could get home safely and away from these people who wanted to harm him. And the police didn't do that, but they did turn him back out on the streets where he was promptly stabbed. He, he survived, um, and that's how he met my friend, the youth worker. But I think uh, it kind of really illustrated for me the, the, the extent to which it kind of sometimes feels like the police aren't really trying to protect the right people. And my friend Franklin said that, you know, for the young people he works with, he finds that they say it's much better to be caught with a knife by the police than caught without one by someone who seeks to do you harm. I mean, that's all to say, what of the police in this? So, a few things, I think. The the first is, going on from what I was saying earlier about all of the cuts, all of the cuts in education and cams and so on, that if the government does that, then what it effectively does is create a crisis. Mm. And then you're asking the police to police a crisis. To that extent, the police are dealt a pretty poor hand. Then they have this very, very crude tool, stop and search. When you talk to people in Scotland about what they think has worked there and not worked there, one of the things they say is, well, this is a a leading criminologist in Edinburgh, says, well... We don't have the racial tensions that they have in London. Mm. So one of the things that you have to think about with stop and search is 
whatever you, whatever intelligence you gather as a result of that, you also alienate an entire community that won't cooperate with you and won't give you the broader intelligence that you need so that you can work effectively within it. It erodes trust within the police. And I saw that myself sitting in Dalston, where I live, in with my family. I see a group of kids, kind of 18, 19, stopped. One of them's in handcuffs because he's lippy. I ask the police, well, what are you doing? A crowd has gathered. And they say, um, uh, we've been told that there is a young man with grey tracksuit trousers carrying a knife. Young black man. It's like, this is Dalston. <laughs> like, how many? That is not intelligence. <laughs> That's not useful intelligence. And, of course, none of these kids had a knife. It was completely ridiculous. And I, but I thought, is it too much to ask? that I would not want my child to be humiliated in that way and I would not like them to be stabbed. Mm. Is that too much to ask? And I don't think it is. So whatever claims are made for stop and search, there are counterclaims, which I think have a lot of, make a lot of sense about damage that it does to the possibility of the possibilities of policing. There is absolutely no correlation between sentences and fines and all of that and crime. Mm. So that is a complete red herring. That is, and that's where they go every time. It has no effect. And, well, it's gone up, you know. Yeah. And then you get to that issue of kids feeling safe or not. And this is a tricky one for the left, I think, or for my experience of the left, because I kind of... I, I, I don't feel comfortable around the police. I'm, I'm a black man, even though I'm 50 now. Mm. I grew up being told that these people aren't necessarily going to be your friends. And mm. I saw them not being friendly and um, that, that the level of trust is not there. Mm. And these young people who say, I'd rather carry a knife and get caught than be caught without one, what they're saying is there's no one out there to protect me. Yeah. I don't feel that uh, I, I live in a lawless state. Yeah, and for lots um, of them that's true. Right, you know? and the remedy for that is a range of ways of which policing is one that would make them feel safe. Mm. There is an issue about cuts to policing, I mm. think, in all of this, which is separate from the style of policing. If you put more police mm. on the street and all mm. they do is stop and search. It's not really going to help. Mm. Um, but, yeah, people carry knives because they're scared. This is a degree to which one can call it an epidemic, mm. that people increasingly feel unsafe. They hear about more kids being stabbed. They think, I don't want to be stabbed. No one's going to be that. So then they carry the knife. Mm. They carry a knife. Then their friend thinks, well, if he's got a knife, I should have a knife. Last night we were out and this kid pulled a knife from me. So before you know it, there are more and more people carrying a, um, a knife. And when um, I was in the States doing my book on um, gun deaths, I interviewed this guy called Gary Slutkin, who had a map of Chicago and he had all these red dots where there had been shootings and they were all on the south side, which is the black bit, and the west side, which is the Latino bit. And he said, see this map? It's the same map for cholera in Bangladesh or typhus in Khartoum or something. It's an epidemic map. Up there, there's no red dots or very few red dots. And mm. down here, it's kind of 
and and um, this is his way. He was an epidemiologist, and then he became a gun control campaigner. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's part of his theory about the public health approach. Mm. We're not, so it's the Weekly Economics podcast and we're not allowed to be party political and I am not encouraging you to be so. However, one of the things that I find interesting about this is the different party approaches or the different kind of political approaches to solving this are not necessarily aligned with what you might expect, mm. you know, um, in terms of like the decisions that different political parties make around what to fund and how to tackle this. Mm. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit more about if anything surprises you about the, the more party political approaches to this. I've mostly just been a bit dismayed by how little from either party um, sort of joined up holistic Mm. thinking. Um, I'm beginning to see a bit more now from Labour. Conservative Party always just, they just go for law and order Mm. every time, which means anything but Mm. usually. Every single piece of evidence shows that longer sentences, um, stiffer fines, all that stuff doesn't work. It just Mm. doesn't work. So, and that's just not good enough. Labour's response used to be much more uh, paternalistic and wrong-headed and parenting, all of that kind of stuff. And it has now become more structural. Mm. Just what, you know... What systems can we put in place to catch these kids? But frankly, they've all got quite a long way to go. Um, if you look at things like youth services, which are, you know have been slashed, I spoke to a youth service worker in um, from Dudley, I think, and he was saying, look, you know, people want some kind of cost-benefit yeah. analysis of what we do, and. What we're doing is sitting down and talking with kids who often don't have someone at home they can sit down and talk to, and that you know I can't you know I can't tell you the particular moment at which you know some kid turns and maybe they don't maybe admit you don't there's stuff you can't measure yeah 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 but that has value mm. and otherwise you end up there's a great quote by Robert Kennedy which I'm gonna you know, mash now. But it's basically, look, GMP measures everything apart from what's important. It doesn't measure how happy we are, how much time we spend with our kids. It measures, but it does measure bulletproof vests that Mm. police have to wear to defend themselves against bullets. The bullets are in there, the bulletproof vests are in there, the guns are in there, but the death isn't. Mm. And so the definition or one definition of a miser, someone who knows the cost of everything and the value of nothing, and we are not valuing young people's lives. Mm. We value their deaths in a very peculiar and perverse way. Mm. So they die, suddenly they're valued. They may be valued, but their lives, not so much. Mm. And as you say, I mean, these, it's when you've got these kind of wholesale cuts, then the the organizations that pop up to try and provide the services that aren't there you know like your red thread like spiral like these other organizations then have to argue and battle with funders for why they why that that work why helping 10 people in one year is worth mm. paying for well right and and there is um so scotland did a thing where they yeah. decided to take a more holistic approach a public health approach that's what they called it and pu- what the public health approach means is 
it's no good just looking at that moment where that person stabbed that person. You have to look at all of the things that may have led to that and how you can put that day off through kind of coordinated interventions, including, you know, drug rehab and housing and then employment and so on, and police. And they managed to pull the rate of uh, youth violence down considerably. Mm -hmm. It's not a panacea, but they managed to do it considerably. Now, one of the things, or a few of the things that they say in Scotland, when they, particularly when they come to London, and London has about one in eight of Britain's population and a half of the knife death, so that's just out of whack. Mm -hmm. They say, look, our approach is publicly funded, whereas yours is mostly third sector funded. It's mostly yeah. charity funded. Yeah. Well, first of all, they're spending half their time raising money. We're spending all of our time dealing with kids. Secondly, they all have to have a slightly different offer. Yeah. Whereas we can all do the same thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what, you know, we're all doing the same thing. So there's that. And then you cannot have public health approach in a period of austerity. Yeah. There is a considerable amount of support in the police for, for this, mm. but everybody can say it, but and actually for it to exist, you need public funding. Mm. And a lot of the kind of activism and organising work that I do, one of the things that comes up a lot is this idea that something's only a, a kind of trigger event if it depends on who cares, you know, mm. it depends on who, who the outrage comes from, determines whether or not it is really a, an epidemic or, or an emergency or a public health crisis or not. Yeah, I guess, put bluntly, if you think it's a problem that solely affects black kids in London, people outside London will think, well, it's got nothing to do with me. Mm. And white people in London will think, this has got nothing to do with me. And so um, you're left with a small group of people who... People say, well, why should we fund you and your problems? You know, why sort yourself out? Mm. Whereas if we understand it as a national problem, which it is, by the way, even if that were true, it's still kids dying. They're mm -hmm. British kids. We still mm -hmm. have a collective responsibility for them. We should still be funding solutions. As it happens, it's not true. Mm -hmm. And there are real uh, connections there that you see with how America understands or doesn't understand things like healthcare and food stamps and so on, which they have managed, Republicans have managed to misportray as things black people want. Yeah. And therefore, white people who need these things as well say, I'm not paying for your food stamps. It's like, it's your bloody food stamps as well. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, if you can racialise a problem in a certain way, it's not, cause it's not just racialising it. Some problems do affect one racial group more than others, but in a certain way. And in this way, it is these people, not you, these people have a deficient culture. Mm. And that is why these things are happening. Nothing to do with a broader structural, nothing. Deficient culture. Their music, their parenting, their language, their clothes. Pull your pants up, get a life. Mm -hmm. If you can make that seem like it's a problem, then you don't have to spend any money. And... The deaths, when they happen in those areas, are discounted. They're discounted as the price you pay for being young and black and living in this country. Well, that's what happens over there. Mm. So it, um, uh, it's a horrible, horrible spiral. And the fact that it's factually incorrect. And when we were doing um, Blades, first thing I did 
when we started doing the series was well, I wanted to know well, how many kids got killed. That's how we found out that that was not publicly available, wow. that the information wasn't publicly available. I- 11 months in with our data journalists and freedom of information requests, we got the data. But in the meantime, I thought I did think, well, what the hell have we been talking about then? Mm-hmm. We don't know which kids are dying. We don't even know how many kids are killed every year. It is known, but we don't know it. The public don't know it, and they're not making it publicly available. So then what is shaping this conversation? Mm. And what's shaping this conversation is a mixture of prejudice and authoritarianism. That's what was shaping the conversation, but not facts, mm. which is why when the facts came in and they contradicted most of what people, what people thought, namely London accounts for half of them, and most of the kids, by a long way, most of the kids who die are not black. Mm. Well, then you can have a di- you can have a very different conversation. But it did make me wonder why people were so bold in the conversations they were having before when they had no facts. Mm. Okay, Gary Young, thank you so much for coming and joining us again. As usual, it's been insightful. It's been brilliant. It's been wonderful. The last thing I wanted to ask you is. As we kind of discussed before we started recording, um, one of the the problems with the knife crime debate in general is just this huge spread of kind of misinformation and, and misconceptions, and hopefully we've started to address some of those. But just to put you on the spot for a second, if, if our listeners are going to take away one fact from this that they're going to pass on, what should it be? That there is a solution to this. Mm-hmm. There is a solution. Um, it's not an easy solution, but if you publicly fund a public health approach to knife crime you will lives will be saved mm-hmm. thank you gary and if people want to hear more from you how can they do that if they go to beyond the blade guardian you, they can see the year and a half range of articles that we did during the series mm-hmm. um they can follow me on twitter gary Young, <laughs> where among other things i do mm. um right about knife crime and maybe if they hang around in Dulce, they might spot you. Maybe if they hang around in Dulce, <laughs> they might, they, might so they, can, they can stop me, but they can't search me. <laughs> nice. Uh, thanks so much, Gary. So that's it for this week. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Weekly Econ Pod on Twitter. The Weekly Economics Podcast is produced by James Shield and brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. We're taking a break for a bit, but I'll see you back here in a few weeks' time.